Today we read from 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night... The word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of the men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Thanks, David. Uh, I gave you a huge task. Uh, I picked all 17 verses to read. Uh, But those are the words of God. I I wasn't sure exactly how you would uh, edit God's words uh, and uh, and actually be honoring to them. So uh, I let David read all 17 verses. Uh, I want to just you know, say what an incredible honor and privilege it is to get to come before you and uh, to come together here and share God's word and to open it up and to uh, try to come to, to grips with what he is saying to us and, uh, and what he wants us to learn from it. At the same time, I have to admit that it's incredibly nerve-wracking to do this. <laughs> um, these are, these are truly uh, 
the, the nervous times of my life. If there's any of all the things that I do and the various uh, uh, things that I endeavor to do and are called to do in, in, in my life and in my job, probably this single thing is the most, um, most nervous making of them all. It, uh, it creates anxiety and tension and all sorts of fun things. And a lot of it, I think, relates to uh, how I view what I'm doing. Uh, I, I admit that this passage was difficult to get into, not because this isn't a wonderful passage. In fact, I think there's too much wonderfulness about it. It is, it is an enormous passage. Uh, it has two major sections to it. It, it is significantly big in its scope, and it, and it holds a place of great prominence in, in, our, in our biblical literature. But I think the biggest difficulty I had was the part where I was trying to understand what it said. I was trying to come to grips with uh, a way to, to express all of this. I was engaged in trying to understand out of my intellect and my experience and all of the other resources and tools at my disposal how to communicate the, this passage. And what, that, what the Lord ultimately said in all of that is contemplate who it is you, you're relying on for trying to get into this passage. Stop, wait, listen, contemplate, meditate on me, my word, hear my voice. I will open up my word for my people. It is, it is not you, it is not your message, it is my message and my word. Let's pray together. Father, we just come before you today uh, desiring to know you better. We come before you in humble submission to your word and to your will. Lord, we ask that your spirit would guide us into this passage, that this passage would speak to our lives, and that we would become people who are committed to doing your will in our world because of something that we gain from knowing you through this means. Lord, we, we, just, we just grant you uh, the access to our hearts and to our minds. We turn this time over to you and pray your spirit would lead us uh, together into, into your presence. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. As I said, this is one of those great passages of scripture. Uh, this is one of those things that if you were uh, to contemplate, you know, contemplate it, you might take this and put it in a frame on the wall. This is like uh, university diplomas, like uh, some people with marriage certificates, uh, baptismal certificates, things which are of great importance and, and are, are touchstones of life. Um, you know, for, for me around here, my particular one, my, my occupation last year was getting this certificate of occupancy for a building. You know, so it's in this pretty frame. It's a, it can something to display on the wall in the office, etc. But I think that if we were to take this passage of scripture and do nothing more than hang it on our walls and uh, and put it in the pretty frame and and look at it from time to time, we would be sadly mistaken. I think it's significant and important for us to take it out of the frame and touch it and and look at what God says here and look at how David responds and contemplate it from that point of view. Now, as the story has progressed, remember last week we left David in a state of waiting. He was king over half of the kingdom. He was still surrounded by 
by Philistines, by enemies of all sorts. God's total plan and his total revelation of that plan had not occurred yet in David's life. He was waiting on God. Now, a lot has happened since then. We're skipping ahead a few chapters in the narrative uh, to chapter 7. And, um, and during this time, David has become king over the full kingdom. David has subdued the enemies that surround him. It's a time of peace in the, in the land. Most significantly, in, in chapter 6, David moves the ark to its place of honor and its place of resting in Jerusalem, his kingdom, his, 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 uh, his royal uh, city of dwelling. And, and I think that's very important for us to contemplate because David has taken this step of moving the ark to be among the, in, in his midst and in the midst of the people, and he is, he is bringing God, Yahweh, into the center of their lives. And as our text this week starts... Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent, literally in a curtained uh, curtained room, a curtained place. Um, He's saying that the ark of God is living in 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 a place that is framed in by goatskins. And, and somehow this seems wrong to me, says David. It seems wrong that I have this beautiful palace and God is living as, in, in this humble way that he has dwelt throughout our times of wandering. And I think I need to do something about this. And so you know, he says to, says to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan pronounces of absolute truth. The statement that God is with him has been true since the beginning with David, right? David has been God's own man. God has commissioned him. He has moved forward in God's will and for God's sake, for God's glory, for some long period of time now. And so Nathan tells him to do this. To go ahead, do it. It seems like the right thing to do. But... Something happens. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now, so I, I have this contemplation of Nathan the prophet as being a man who, who was a prayerful person. I, can, I could speculate that that night he had gotten down on his knees before the Lord, seeking out his will, seeking out his direction, seeking out his way for him to, to live and for him to advise the king. And... and in that process, God spoke. As, as, as Nathan meditated on the Lord, the Lord spoke back to him and tells him um, that he, to go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. God, God, God basically says, David, good idea, wrong plan. You need to consult me in the process. You need to hear my voice, and I'm bringing you my voice in Nathan. I don't get a strong sense of chastisement or, or 
rebuke in what God tells Nathan to say to David. I get more a sense that uh, God is telling Nathan to go to David and inform him of God's true way and true plan. He's asking David to wait on him more. He's asking David to contemplate who God is, to contemplate who he's been in their lives and how he functions with them on an everyday basis. He is coming to, to David with truth. He's bringing him reality. He's bringing him back into the things which are fundamental and basic to living in, in God's uh, kingdom. And so he, he goes and says, reminder, has there ever been a problem with me having a place to dwell? Reminder, where have I been all of these years, all of these times of wandering, all of these times of trial, all of these times of great triumph? I have always been living in this, this tent, and it has made no difference. I have never asked you for a palace. I have never asked you for more than that. What I have asked you for is you. What I have asked you for is your heart and your will and your loyalty. What I have asked you for is your absolute commitment to me. And then God goes on to talk to David about why that is true and how that has been played out through, through their time together. Um, he, you know, God wants us, just like David, to listen to him. He wants us to, to, to focus our attention, to bring our energy to bear in, in hearing his voice. Off that means we have to do exactly what David did, which is wait on him and wait on him and wait on him and meditate on his word and contemplate his truth and listen for him to respond. And I think that's the picture we have here is a period of time when David has been waiting and a period of time when he has been listening and a period of time when he's been meditating and contemplating and God speaks and says, David, I want you to understand some things about the life that we have lived together. I want you to see who I have been to you. I want you to focus on that. I want you to go out of yourself and contemplate me. If you note that these first uh, 17 verses are filled with expressions of I and me, God is very, very clear with David as he is with us that he wants us to see him to know him, to focus on him, to look at how he interacts with our lives, to become very aware of the reality of his presence in our life. He wants us to understand that through the whole path of life, the ups, the downs, the, the joys, the triumphs, the failure, the sadness, the brokenness of life, that he has been with us, that he has been present, that he has been actively involved with us, he is not on the sidelines. He is not a passive one. He is a God who engages with our life. And this is the story that he brings to David. He takes David through this life progression of his. He takes David from a reminder of where did he start. He was in a pasture following sheep. In a pasture. A humble shepherd. The outcast of his family. The, the, the least of, of men in his community. And he was following sheep. Now, how many of you have been engaged with sheep in your life? There, there's some. You've been around sheep. Few, few. There were a few the last hour too. 
Following sheep is probably not the most pleasant thing to do in life, nor the most edifying thing to do in life. And I think there was something very specific about what God wanted to say here. He didn't just say you were a shepherd in the fields. He said you were a shepherd following sheep. That that was, that was your life's occupation and that was the highest endeavor you had was, was whatever happens behind sheep. Uh, so, so and, and he goes, but he goes on from there and he says, I, I took you from being a shepherd following sheep to being a prince, a ruler over my people, over my people. So David, is, God has taken him from this role, this humble, the lowest of all roles, to this great role of leading God's chosen people. And, and, he, and God is the one who did this for him. Additionally, he, he, has gone, he reminds him that he has gone with him everywhere, that there has been no time, no place, no situation that David has been in where God was not with him totally and absolutely. David has had some very interesting wanderings, hasn't he? He's, he's been in great peril. He's been in situations of great triumph. He's been in places where he himself walked far away from God's way, where he sought his own answers, where he tried to devise his own ways through and out of the situation he was in. And God says, in every time, every moment, every situation, I walked with you. I stayed with you. I never left your side. And, and God goes on then to remind him that during all of those times, he also cut off his enemies. Now contemplate that for a moment. What is he saying to him? Not only did I go with you, but I protected you. I kept your enemies from getting to you. They may have hurt you. They may have, they may have injured you. You may have been bloodied and battered, but they never got you. They never, ever owned you. I protected you from them. I cut them off. I put the wall up between you and them. I separated you from their harm, from the evil one's desire to get you. And it goes on from there to say that he made David a great name, that he, he made him a man who is recognized at those times in his kingdom, but to this very day, isn't he? I mean, we, the name David has enormous recognition in the world, not just in the, not just in the church world, but people the world over know the name David. He made him a great name. And that means more than just he himself. In the context that we're talking about, what God is really saying to David is that I have made your name one that will endure. Your name has lasting prominence and presence. Your name has a place that will continue on through history in my kingdom. And this is, this, God says, I did this for you. And then he goes on to say, I appointed you a place. I gave you a spot that is significant for you to occupy in my world. And he's not talking about the deed to a house. He's not talking about the ownership of a little plot of tangible land somewhere. God's talking about something more significant than that. The idea of place here is much bigger than just a house or just some lands that surround it. The idea of place is a, is a place of, of significance, a place of importance, a place of living within God's will in his kingdom. That's place. Just like God said, I don't need a palace to live in. 
God's also saying the place I give you is something much bigger than just the walls where you reside. The place where you live is, the, is, is defined by your, your influence on the world where you live, by your bringing of my glory into that world, by your servant, servant attitude and your service to me. That's place. That's what he gave David. He gave David an opportunity to be influential for the sake of God in his world. That's place. And that's what God gave to him. And he goes on to say that I took my people and I planted them. I think that's a beautiful image. He planted them. He gave them a place where they could grow, where they could set down roots, where they could thrive, where they could get nourishment, where they could, could bear fruit. That it, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity, again, to, to serve him. And he did this for David and for the people who were with David. He does that for us. He grants us a place. He grants us an opportunity to, to be planted, to grow, to develop. He feeds us. He nurtures us. He prunes us. And he, he allows us to bear fruit. And he goes on to say that in that place where they are planted, they will dwell and not be disturbed, and they will not be afflicted by evil men. They, and, and I think, again, he's saying something, he's making a promise that's very, very real and very significant. He's saying that evil, evil is present in the world. Evil will come after us. There, is, <clears throat> there are and will be forces of evil, satanic drives and forces that will go after us, that he, will, we, he doesn't promise that we won't be injured. He doesn't promise that we won't be bloodied and battered and bruised in life. That's living in this world. What he does promise is that they will not get us, that, that, that these evil men will not get us where it matters. <clears throat> he will protect our hearts and our souls from them. He will keep us, if we are willing to, to follow him, he will keep us safe where it truly matters, in the depths of our spirits and our, and our, and our souls. And, and that is what he is promising to David and reminding him of. And then, through all of that, he said, the next thing he tells him is that he gives him rest. And I think it's, it's more and bigger than just a good night's sleep. What he gives him is a sense of peace in his, in his inner being, that, that he can trust God, <clears throat> that he can have confidence and faith, that he is, is, is going to be able to live and follow God and be in the center of his will. This is what Yahweh promises to David and reminds him of. And then he goes on to say he makes David a house. This is a, this is a reflection on his promise to let his line continue forever. He will be a, a, a house in perpetuity. Pardon my, 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 my politically correct Cold Valley Christian uh, uh, water bottle. And it goes on to say that uh, he will make his descendant, Solomon specifically, and on into the future, the, the king, that they are, their kingdom will continue, and that although they will be iniquitous people, they will commit sins, some of them enormous sins, and they will be punished, and they will be chastened, chastised for it. They won't be cut off as Saul had been. That, that he, this gets back to that idea of protecting their souls, 
that they will not be cut off. They will continue. They will be a part of God's plan into the future. And God, God just continues to remind David of these things. And he goes on to say that he will establish his throne. God says he will establish his throne and that even in iniquity, God will judge chases and preserves, but he won't turn aside from him. In 2 Corinthians 6, 16, it says, um, I will make my dwelling among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Um, in summary, God reminds David that he delights in giving to his people, that he, he, is, that he is, is made glad when he can do these things for his people, that it is, is something that he truly delights in. And so David responds to, to what God has said to him. And, and David you know, goes before God and says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now the expression he has here is one of great, enormous humility. The Hebrew suggests that he is... is on his knees in a sense of contrite brokenness before the Lord, that he, he recognizes the enormity of what God has done in his life, that he, he grasps the, the incredible way that God has been a part of his existence, has made him who he is, and he comes before the Lord in this worshipful attitude of listening and submission. And he desires to speak back to the Lord the truths that he has heard. And I think there's something very significant in that for us, uh, you know, in what David does here. He, he waits on the Lord. He meditates on his word and listens for his voice. And after hearing his voice, he speaks back to God in, in this, this beautiful prayer of praise and thanksgiving and, and reflection back of what he has heard from God. And, uh, and he goes in here and he says, he recognizes, first of all, David does, that his own thoughts are finite. They are limited. They're, they're controlled and constrained by himself and by his limited understanding and experience. And on the other hand, he recognizes that God's, God sees all, that he knows all, that he is... Uh, able to comprehend all that has been, all that is today, and all that will be into the future. That he is, that his picture of David's life is complete and total, whereas David's own comprehension of it is bound by his circumstances and bound by his 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 viewpoint, which is this earthly human view. And God provides him. Through, through David's willingness to listen, he provides him with a picture of what is really there, what is really possible, what, what, is, what his great hope is. He takes him out of the moment and takes him into the potential in God's uh, economy of life. 
uh, he makes David's vista much bigger than it would have been otherwise. And he goes on from there, and, and he reminds David that he knows him well, that, that he is uh, someone who, who, who God knows so well because he is someone that God made. We, we are never known by anybody as well as we are known by God. It is that simple. David comes to this realization. He comes to this place of recognition of that truth. And he reflects on how, how magnificent God. For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it, to make me know you. Deuteronomy 6 uh, Four through six, we know this well. Some of you probably could recite this off the, off the tip of your tongue. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And that is the, I think that is the thought that is in David's mind here, that the recognition of who exactly is God, how magnificent, how mighty, how great he is. And David is, is, is struck by this reality. And, and God goes on to remind David that all of his glory, his desire to, to bring his glory into this world is played out in people. He reminds David that he has a purpose. He has a place. He has, there is a reason for his, his invo- God's involvement with David, and that is to bring the glory of Yahweh into this world, into this darkened place where we live. But that is why God has, has invested so heavily in David, is to bring his reality to bear on the world around David. And David is struck by the fact that he works through him, through somebody like him, somebody who came from being a humble shepherd boy in a pasture following sheep, to somebody who is God's chosen but God's chosen to lead his people to bring God's glory into the world, to bring his presence into a place that needs to know their Savior. That is his purpose, just as that is our purpose. So at that point in time, David makes a profession of dedication. He states that he's going to give his life over to bringing the glory of Yahweh into the world and to bringing Yahweh into his life in a full and complete way. This is a dangerous place to be uh, when, we, when we decide to commit ourselves fully. That can be a scary thing to do. Look at the, the words of Psalm, 139 Psalm, 20, verses 23-24, I think are, are very indicative of this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Scary prayer. <laughs> Contemplate that one for a minute. Asking God to show you everything about yourself. Reveal to me every detail of who I am. Reveal to me all of the places where I deviate from following you. Reveal to me the truth of your holiness versus my brokenness, versus my sinfulness. Praying that with a sincere heart, though, is a step down the road of recognizing who God is in your life because it requires enormous trust, requires us to to believe that God truly has our best in his mind, that he cares more for 
for us than we could ever comprehend. And, and praying this way with all sincerity leads us to, to God's revealing of the truth in our lives and takes us to a place where we can move out of where we are to the place where God intends for us to go, into that hope of his glory that he has for us. And so God, God goes on and, and he makes a couple of other comments to God. David recognizes these, these comments from God and the situation with God. And the thing that he recognizes at this point is that God's commitment to him is what gives him courage. He can be brave enough to pray these words, to seek God's will, to step out, even though it may seem risky down the path that God is leading him, because of God's commitment to him, his total, everlasting, unchanging, unyielding commitment to him. This is what allows David to move forward. And God then promises David his forever. He promises that he will never leave him, that he will continue on. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. There is a, an old hymn, old song, that probably many of you know, uh, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus." This hymn was written uh, by Louisa Stead in 1882. Now, the story, I didn't know the story behind this hymn before I was looking at these words. Uh, Louisa Stead and her young daughter and husband were out on a picnic on Long Island Sound, uh, and uh, they heard uh, a man, young man in the water uh, in trouble, struggling, and her husband went to save him. And in the process, both the boy and her husband drowned. And in, in the way of life as it often was in the 19th century, Louisa was left destitute. Without a husband, she had nothing. And the Lord kept speaking to her and kept revealing himself to her and kept bringing comfort to her broken heart. And the words of this hymn are ones that she wrote in the aftermath of this. Just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Now, in Louise's life, God gave her a gift. He gave her the gift of writing words and music. And she learned how to, she wrote words and she wrote music of hymns and she published hymn books. And she supported herself and her daughter by doing that. Subsequently, she was called to the mission field and served for many years in South Africa as a missionary. God was, was true to his ever, forever promise with Louisa, the forever promise in Christ. It is grace that God gives us to, do, to have the courage to believe God's promises. It's grace that takes us out of the fear that surrounds our hearts and that keeps us tied down. It is grace that brings us into his presence. It is grace that conquers all that stands in the way of us living as David recognized we could live, as the Lord showed David we can be, fully, fully embraced by him and understanding him well, knowing him to the point we can trust him 
knowing him to the point where we can follow him absolutely. Jesus' words to us in John 6:51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Bread is a symbol. It's simple, tangible, real. Christ is the fulfillment of God's long ago promise that he would never leave us or forsake us, that he would put an end to the decay and the death that sin has caused in our world. As Louisa Stead learned, it is grace that leads us into trusting Christ. Grace takes us out of our self-centered lives and causes us to wait and to listen so that the voice of God can be heard. It is grace that brought David to his knees before God. It is grace that brings us into a life that is lived in the provision and the blessing of God's forever promise that is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your commitment to us. We thank you for the grace that uh, sets us free. Lord, I would pray that we would we would each uh, hear your voice in ways that are profound and personal and deeply intimate, that we would know you well, learn to trust you completely. Lord, I thank you for this love and for this, the way that you engage with our lives. Lord, take us from here and, and lead us in your way everlasting. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.